Welcome to From Idea to Action, Stories from Alabama Innovators, a podcast powered by the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology, a nonprofit organization with a mission to improve the human condition. I'm Carter Wells, and I lead the economic development efforts here at Hudson Alpha. From Idea to Action, Stories from Alabama Innovators is a podcast that highlights the people who are driving Alabama forward. We aim to showcase and connect the deep network of innovators, entrepreneurs, policy leaders, and advocates who are working to make Alabama an even better place. If you're not yet subscribed to this podcast, you can subscribe wherever you listen. Be sure to follow Hudson Alpha on all social media platforms to stay up to date on what's happening at the Institute, as well as to stay up to date on new episodes as they are released. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you learned something new about Alabama innovators moving ideas to action. It's my honor and privilege to be the moderator of this today here with Jim Hudson, the co-founder of Hudson Alpha. And a lot of folks had a chance to hear him, but I think a lot of folks that are across the campus have not. And so this seemed to be a good opportunity to hear a little bit from Jim about his story and kind of the pathway that led he and Lonnie to start Hudson Alpha. And you know, while I think a lot of things have been said on the whys and whats and hows of this from other people, and a lot of us in this room have talked about it, hearing it from Jim will be a, a treat for everybody, I think. And aside from Hudson Alpha, Jim has been a driving force in this community and across the state for many years, whether that's with the Biotechnology Association of Alabama, which is now BioAlabama, or early parts of the Huntsville redevelopment and the downtown redevelopment, whether that's with the Terry Hutchins building and all the things that started right off the square, probably 20 or something years ago, if not a little bit longer, 22 to be exact, to Low Mill and of course to Hudson Alpha. And before we get started, I want to thank a couple of folks, Abby Rusi and Tyler Clark around here, right here, sorry, the communications team that is represented Around here at some point, Chris Powell is around. Alex Kate, who is not here, and I think as much as I'd like him to be here, I think everybody's glad because he's got a stomach bug, and so he is not here. And then Debbie Morgan as well. And then also operations and facilities. Thank you all very much for making all this happen like you do on every occasion, on every event that we have here at Hudson Alpha. It is good to see kind of a mix of Hudson Alpha and of the associate companies as well as a handful from the community. And I know at least one or maybe more of Jim's family's here as well. So glad y'all could join us. But without further ado, let me get started. I think we'll jump right in. And Jim, I'll start off with the first question. And basically, what do you love about science? How did you get started with some of this? What do I love about science? What I love about science is the opportunity to discover things that no one else has ever done, whatever. He teased me and told me he was going to ask me that question, so I'm a little bit prepared. In high school, I used to go caving, and my buddy and I, we discovered quite a few caves around the area here. And you go back a mile into a cave underground, and you're looking at something you found, and you think, gosh, no one, no human being has ever seen this before. It's just an immense feeling discovery for me, and that's the way science is for me. You put a and B together and create C, and it just feels wonderful. So I just love science from that point of view. And at some point in that early days, probably maybe not as early as you wanted, or maybe as your folks 
would have had it a little bit later, but you received a chemistry set and you in turn enjoyed playing with that and making things happen. I'll say that. I probably would have still gone caving, but I might not have wound up in science. When I was 10 years old, my cousin, who was about the age of my father, gave me a Gilbert chemistry set. Some of you have heard this story, but I love the fact that I look out through here and there's a lot of people I don't know. So maybe I'm not boring you with something that you've already heard. I got this chemistry set. It was after World War II. It was kind of a recession. So my cousin was out of work and he came over to the house and spent a lot of time with me and we did stuff. And in those days, you got real radioactive elements in the kit. So you could do radioactive experiments. You could expose film. You could take x-rays of your hand. You got potassium nitrate and charcoal and you could make gunpowder and you could build bombs and blow things up. So that is the reason I'm in science today. There's no doubt about it. Just that wonder of being able to do that. And I probably, it's not just the chemistry set. It was the time my cousin spent with me that really helped me succeed because I would have probably just spilled it all and messed up and I'd been, I moved on something else. But anyway, that was really the turning point for me. That's how I got into science. Right. And so from college and going to Vietnam and then kind of going back into a professional life, why didn't you go directly into a, a biology-based, because this is kind of what you're known for, as opposed to where you started with physics degree and kind of the physics path? I never took a biology class till I was 42 years old. So that's why I didn't go into biology when I came back. Growing up, my father was a serial entrepreneur. He loved to start companies. The first five failed. But I fall into that path of wanting to be an entrepreneur because of my dad's example. So as a teenager, I worked in the, found the, the company that did succeed. He started a pattern shop and aluminum foundry here in Huntsville. And I worked my way through high school working there. I went off to school, got a degree in chemistry, then went to graduate school, got a degree in physics, went off to Vietnam. And while I was there, Dad convinced me to come back and join him in the foundry. So I did that. That was 1970. So my brother and I joined my father, and we had, had Hudson Metals here in Huntsville, gray iron and aluminum foundry. We grew it into a very high-tech foundry, not particularly large foundry, but very automated, very high output per person. But during the 70s, 74, I believe, Boyer and Coyne published a paper on cutting DNA and splicing DNA back together. And the whole field of, in, of genetic engineering was invented. And I was reading papers during that period, physics papers primarily, but that article about Boyer and Coyne came out in Scientific American. It just captured my imagination. And I said, this is the physics of life. This is what I want to do. I'm still in the foundry business and stayed in the foundry business for the next five or six years. But as the Chinese sort of took over the foundry business, dad and I were lucky to be able to sell it before we, it went to zero. And I took that money and went back to college to study biology at 42, because I now wanted to be a molecular biologist. Who were some of the people that helped you along the way to get to UAH to basically say, yeah, you can do something like this. And I know you've got a, a handful of folks that used to work here that were part of that UAH family yeah. for you. Yeah, I have to think about that. They, they said I couldn't do it. 
you know, it's, it's funny stories. I don't think Dr. Z is here at the Horshack, but I went to UAH and said, I've got a master's in physics, but I'd like to get a master's in biology, and I'm willing to enroll and work in a lab for free. I had money and all that. They said, no, we don't want you. We get a lot of old guys coming around here thinking they can do something. Anyway, Bob Zohorshek was in the hallway. I talked to him, and I said I'd work in his lab for free that summer, and he took me up on it. He didn't have any money. And we worked on Yersinia pestis, which is the plague. Fortunately, I think we were, I, yes, we definitely worked on a non-viral strain because I survived. But we were mouth pipetting at the time. The first thing I did was buy my own real pipetter. UAH didn't have any. But anyhow, Bob and I had a nice summer. We published a paper. And then the department decided maybe they would let me in. And so I got in and started working on a master's at UAH. But I don't think anybody else is here. Dr. Z was with me in my company later, but I don't know anybody else here from UAH. Got it. So timeline between with Dr. Zorchak and when you started research genetics, what was kind of happening during that time and what made the, so 80, what was the spark to get going with research yeah, genetics? Yeah, so 84, I actually started in the graduate school and I was fortunate to have a wonderful lady as my faculty advisor. She was not on the faculty there, but her husband was moved into the area. She was a fellow at NIH, and she just moved into this area and was volunteer teaching at UAH. Anyhow, she and I set out to find out how many myosin heavy chain genes there are in cows. That, I mean, that was her subject, not mine, but she put me on it. We went down to Auburn, and we slaughtered cows and took out muscle tissue from every part of a cow you can imagine, and then isolated the genes involved in muscle, the myosin heavy genes, chain genes from muscle, and then my job was to sequence them. And sequencing them is a kind of a laborious task in those days. You purified the gene, you had a sequencing primer based on just poly T, you sequenced maybe 80, 90 bases, you designed a sequencing primer to, for the next 80, 90 bases, and you ordered the primer from a company out in California, Synthetic Genetics, and it took about a month to get the primer. So you couldn't move very fast. I was fortunate and I was working on 13 different Madison heavy chain genes, so I had usually had primers I could work with or work on. But it was taking a long time. And one day a lady called me up and wanted to sell me a DNA synthesizer. And I said, hey, I had to buy my own pipetter here. I know they can't afford to buy a synthesizer. And she said, well, let me bring it by and demonstrate it. I'll make you a couple of oligos while I'm there. And so she came, she made them, it took a day. Wait a minute, I'm waiting a month. Why does it take a month? I called up the guy at Synthetic Genetics and he said, well, you know, I've got the one machine. Just wait your turn in the queue. If I could put you at the front if you like sometimes. But I said, no, that's fine. So I bought the machine, started making oligos, and ran an ad in the back of Science Magazine that says, oligos purified and delivered in 48 hours. And bought four machines, then eight machines, ultimately 70 machines, so that we could keep that promise. And we made, became, in the early 90s, mid-90s, we were the largest DNA synthesizer in the country. We really got kicked off. The real break for us came with working with the Whitehead Institute and Eric Lander, which is another story I probably won't go into. But anyhow, it was a great success. We diversified away from just oligos into lots of other things. And 
Brian Pollock and Troy Moore were part of that diversification. So from the time that you started on that one, two, up to 70 machines, and I know you were on the parkway and, you know, basically yeah, gross. That's another part of the story different... people like to hear. This was the back end of a beauty supply store. Uh, we had 300 square feet in the back end of a beauty supply store where we started the, the company. My son, who's here, I ran the machines in the daytime. He ran the nighttime and so that we could fulfill those promises. It only takes about four hours to make an oligo. It takes another four hours to deprotect it and get it ready to ship, but it's not a very long process. We actually started first at UAH. Dean there was nice enough to let us set the machine in one of the labs they weren't using, and for the first three months, it's the machine set at UAH. The phone at the back end of this beauty supply store was forwarded to my phone at UAH, and when it would ring, I would answer research genetics. Sometimes it really was a call for research genetics. And those were the days where you wrote A-C-G-T down on a piece of paper. Then you read it back to them. Sometimes you read it backwards and forwards just to make sure you got it right. But we took off pretty fast. Within, we started with one machine. Almost within months, we had four machines. And my son and I, Jimmy and I, were the only employees. Then we hired some people out of graduate school that I'd gone to graduate school, which was really great. I was in graduate school. You knew who the good guys were and the bad guys were, so I was able to pick the good guys to hire. So it's nothing like hiring your fellow graduate students. But anyway, I got the pick of the litter, and we grew pretty quick to 20 people, and it was a lot of fun. Then it got a little bit bigger and a little bit harder, put on a second shift. We grew and grew. By the time we had 70 machines, we had 200 people. And it reaches a point where you don't know everybody's name and you don't know their spouse's name. You don't know their children's name. And it becomes less fun, I'll be honest. But it's successful. You like the success. But being a family is the best part. During that time, and I'm not sure exactly when either this started or ended, but you would do, was it Stakeout Thursday or Stakeout Tuesday? <laughs> yes. And people would talk about things they're working on or they want to start companies yeah. and kind of the, you establish right. a culture within right. research genetics that So you can imagine when we lasted. first started, it was, we ate every meal together at lunch. As we hired people, we still, would, who's going to order out? But it became a little more formal. People got tired of all eating together. So we, on thir we set up Thursday and every Thursday we ordered from Stakeout a meal for everybody and they were evolved into where you were invited to to bring your parents, spouse or kids, whatever. So we used to have these really massive lunches that took steak out a day to prepare for. But yeah, but each time we would get together, the purpose was, I think we had a lunch recently. I don't hear, but I wasn't here. I'm sorry. But anyhow, you want to tell, praise people who've done a good job that last week because we did this every week. That was great. You could talk about what happened during the week, what the problems might have been during the week, and you could kept it alive. It wasn't once a quarter where you had to rehash things. It was always fresh. But yeah, I love that culture. I still like steak out. And believe it or not, that's what I had for lunch today. <laughs> <laughs> Good timing. So after the acquisition and you start thinking about Hudson Alpha, how did research genetics and kind of the tail that went along with that impact or factor into your starting conversations about with Lonnie and others about what Hudson Alpha may be. Yeah, so I have to kind of back up. In the mid-90s, 
I never have figured this out. I'm pretty sure it was 95. I'm sitting in my office, which didn't have a door on it. And somebody knocks on the door frame and this gentleman introduces himself as Lonnie. He says, I've been told that if I want to find out some information about molecular biology, you're the person I should talk to. And I invited him in and we talked and had a little round table there in front of my desk. And we sat and talked just good chemistry. We talked for a couple of hours. I gave him a few books off of my shelf. I had this little cartoon guide to genetics. This person was an electrical engineer. I didn't know that at the time, but he said he, you know, he didn't know anything about it. So I gave him this cartoon guide to genetics and some other books. And he started showing up once, twice a week. And we became really good friends. Ate, started eating lunch ourselves on Wednesday every week. And it was about three, four months into that when I found out that he was the co-founder of Adtran. And it was Lonnie McMillan, you know, and I had no idea. But that was his personality. He was very low-key, didn't toot his own horn at all. So people had business ideas that they would present to the two of us and we would decide whether or not to fund them and start them. And if we decided that that was a good idea, we would let them start up inside research genetics. We'd give them lab space and our receptionist would answer the phone, their phone number with their name and so forth. And so we kind of stimulated eight or nine companies that way. And we were having a good time. This was a lot of fun. And my research unit got up to, like, we were probably about 190 people when I was approached by Invitrogen to buy it. There's a whole story in there that I won't go through the whole thing. But anyway, they made an offer I couldn't refuse. And part of the offer was they promised to keep research genetics going in Huntsville. They were going to have a capital plan of $5 million to build out some of our facilities and start producing one of our products. And they did spend about $2 million of that, and they spent actually $3 million of that. But in the second year, two years, they decided to close Huntsville and move it to California. And that was just a huge blow to me and, and the two, by then 260 people that we had working there. Lonnie and I are still together. He's still coming on the, uh, every week, and we're still kicking around ideas. We funded a couple other companies by then one of which was Open Biosystems that used to be here. And a lot of them, I see faces out here of other companies that Lonnie and I helped. But anyhow, when it closed, our first reaction was, we've got all these people and it's such a tight family. We wanted to try to keep it together. So we formed this group called the Partnership for Biotechnology Research, PBR. Brian Pollack and Lonnie and I, I think were the drivers of that when it first got started. And we met every quarter and tried to do science. We brought in speakers from outside the country, outside the city. We brought in David Botstein, which is a pretty famous guy. Brought a lot of big people. We kept talking biotech. Those meetings were going really well. We had a good time. Open Biosystems is still running. So sometimes those meetings were held at Open Biosystems. We did hot dog cookouts and things like that. And so Lonnie just said one day, he says, you know, we once upon a time, I'd have to back up. But once upon a time, he tried to, we tried to convert research genetics to a nonprofit. The IRS does not like that. They like you paying taxes. So anyhow, we abandoned that idea after a little work. But anyhow, he came to me and he said, you remember that research institute we've talked about? I said, yes. He says, if you're willing to do it, I'll put up $50 million. Boom. You know, I'm not going to turn that down. 
And so we did it. We did all kinds of things. And as most of you probably know the stories, you know, we got the state to match that with $50 million. I'm not doing a very good job of telling the cute stories. There are a lot of cute stories inside of that. But Lonnie was just the most special person in my life. We wouldn't be here. None of this would be here without Lonnie. And I hate that he can't see it, but I know he would be proud of it. It has definitely fulfilled his dream. You know, our job, our mission was to do good research, of course, and do science. But we wanted to create jobs for those 260 people that got fired. And we wanted to create more jobs and more companies so that if one company sold or went out of business, there was a place for those employees to work, more companies. So a big part of the Hudson Alpha thought process was economic development and stimulating new companies and growing new companies. We obviously also wanted to do good science, and we were just terribly lucky to recruit Ricky here. How you like that, Ricky? I'm thinking of Governor Riley. He always called him Ricky. But anyhow, we couldn't have done. Rick was essential to what we were able to do. There's no doubt about that. One of the stories I like to tell about Rick is Lonnie and I formed a scientific advisory committee of which Rick was on and some other great scientists that had worked with me at Research Genetics. And we were rec- trying to figure out who to hire. And Rick and the SAB was trying, were making suggestions on who we might want to hire to head up the science program. And so I was trying to get Rick to come, but he wouldn't commit. He went to Cold Spring Harbor to help Jim Watson write a book. That's a pretty good honor right there. huh? So he was at Cold Spring Harbor writing a book with Jim Watson. And he called me and he said, hey, I met this guy from Emory that we have to have. And all I heard was we. So I said, give me his name. Two weeks later, we had him. That was Neil Lamb. And from then on, I wouldn't let Rick think anything other than he had said yes. So uh, just needed to lean at that point. Yeah. yeah. He's crawfished a little bit, but not a lot. (laughs) Not a lot. But anyhow, and of course, we got Neil, which fantastic guy. Fantastic. I know one of the couple of the big headlines over the years were this from 05. So it was quite a ways back. And then another big headline was the announcement with Rick over in the Adtran boardroom upstairs. What are a couple of the other headlines over the years that you've... Wow. Well, the biggest one was Rick. I'll say that for sure. We've had some great science headlines. I think Jane Grimwood and Jeremy Schmutz were named among the top 100 most influential scientists in the world. That's pretty good. Let's shift in the future. What would you want as a headline in three years or five years? You know, there are headlines that get published and there are headlines that you just know, or maybe they get in the newsletter. In the next five years, I'd like to see 2,000 people on the campus. I think that would be a headline that I would like. I'd like to see a major pharmaceutical company have some sort of presence on the campus, either as an investment in an existing company or in their own company. I got a feeling that can happen in the next five years. Obviously, I tend to like to build buildings, so obviously I'd like to have a few more building announcements. I'd say since before you walked in this building, you went through the greenhouse and then through the soon-to-be DLS building, and then you got over here. So Right. Yeah, the greenhouse was, it was going. I was over there. It's the first time I've been there with the lights turned on. They're bright. Yep. The, uh, but the DLS building is really coming along. 
I think the DLS story is such a great story. And if Lonnie was here, he would love hearing that, you know, two guys that started a company that he pretty much financed, uh, take it to what it is right now. Crazy big company, around 700 employees, I think. Might be a little more than that today, but in that area. And, and back to the, you like building buildings. When this building was being constructed, we had the kind of the high level Brassfield and Glory general contractors here. And this nice, cordial, get to know you, you know, everybody's glad to be around each other. And of course, they said something to the effect of, well, is there anything we can do for you? And usually it's the, no, everything's going pretty well, you know, because everything was. And I look over and Tim's kind of ready to say something. And he does. He said, well, you know, as I was walking by here on Sunday afternoon, there was a window that was up on the second floor that was turned around wrong. I could tell by the film. And you saw the project manager just sink back in his <laughs> chair. And I'm thinking, okay, I think they were actually dropping a uh, philanthropic check off too. So it was the, all right, it's like I'm telling y'all, he's yeah. going to come around and look all through the building. And even if you put gates and caution tape, he's going to drive right up to the front. And Greg, I think you can attest to this. Yeah. And sure enough, he did. And they, I got a call later that afternoon. He's like, yeah, it was turned the wrong way and we fixed it. <laughs> like, okay, yes, he's looking for that kind of detail. Yeah. And, well, that's, that's and Stephen Green will never, uh, never live that down. That's all I know. <laughs> I don't know if he's here or not. Yeah. But well, I can say I got that from Mark Smith. Okay. Mark is responsible for 601 as far as what a beautiful building that is. He took that under his own care. I mean, he, Lonnie and I and he, the three of us helped design it, but he was made sure that it was top notch everywhere. And it came in at a remarkably low oh, price. Yeah. yeah, I think the contractor went broke. <laughs> they, <laughs> they didn't. Of course, it's, it's a huge contractor, but I don't think they made any money. Mark really just insisted on absolutely the best. And he yeah. taught me that this precast film skin, whatever you want to call it, that we have on these buildings is the way to go. And it really is. These buildings will look great 50 years from now, 70 years from now. Before I open it up, let me ask one more, just kind of a, the best piece of advice you have received and the best piece of advice you would give an entrepreneur or a person with an idea that wants to take it forward in whatever setting. The best advice I ever received, I was eighth grade, whatever that would be. My best friend's father was dying of cancer. He was an accountant at Thiokol chemical, which was a big rocket company here in, back in the day. And he called us into his deathbed. That's really what he was because he died three days later. And we sat on the end of the bed and he says, I want to tell you boys, don't you make the mistake I made. He says, I could have been anything, but I chose to be an accountant and I've hated it all my life. Don't ever stay in a job you don't love. Don't take a job you don't think you're going to love. And that's it. I have never stayed in a job I didn't love. That's the best advice I've had. And so I can give that as advice, right? What was this? Right. You wanted nope, to you got it basically the both ways. Received okay. and you would give. So yeah. Yeah. Rick, you've got a question? Jim, can you tell the story of how you went from a square to a long that On the campus. Yeah. When we first bought this land, we had more or less the same amount of acreage, but it was across Moquin and over here, and it was sort of a square, but it was in it was a blob. And we hired a Tim Packard 
hired a campus engineer, I don't know what you call that sort of thing, to help us design the campus as we had it. We had a blob. He came and talked, and he was a Japanese guy. He came back with this great report, and he said, it ain't going to work. He said, if you look at all the successful campuses in the country, they're long and linear. You need to buy some more. The land was available on the north side here. They said, you need to sell that, buy this, and make a long linear campus. And you need to design, because we had told him about how we want everybody interacting and so forth. So he said, everybody knows what we have, but you might not know some of the little things. So if you're standing out here in the back of this building and you look across the street at somebody in the other building, you can recognize them. That's on purpose. That's, I forget what it is, 266 feet or something the other, that you can recognize somebody across the street. So the campus is set so that you can recognize people across the street or across the campus from you. It was the best tip we got, no doubt. And it's worked. Mm-hmm. Questions? Jimmy or yeah. Cindy, I love you. It's a oh, good time yeah. to shoot. How was, how was Mark Smith involved in the Well, you know, Mark and Lonnie co-founded AdTran together. And when Lonnie and I started doing this, Lonnie asked him at the very beginning to be involved. And he said, no, Lonnie, this is your thing. I'm just going to stay away from it. But as we got moving along, we got our $50 million from the state. We were ready to build a building. We asked him if he would join the board. And his first answer was the same. No, Lonnie, this is yours. But we asked him again, and he agreed to get on the board, and he said, but I'll only come on if I can be in charge of the building committee. And so he came on and was in charge of it. And if, you know, if he hadn't had such a tragic death, I know he'd be a valuable part of us today. He really believed it. Once he decided to become involved, it sounds like you might know Mark, he was all in. I gave him some books. He came back to me and he said, you know, I'm not going to be able to understand these books if I don't understand biochemistry. So he enrolled at MIT in biochemistry online for credit. He took the exams and he got through his first year of biochemistry, first semester of biochemistry, to where he could actually understand what we were doing. He is a fabulous guy. Really, really miss him. And he and Lonnie were a real team. Lonnie was the quiet one and he was the extrovert. But I know it hurt Lonnie when he passed away too. Back to Lonnie, what's your favorite memory of him? Oh, I, that's easy. You got that picture? Uh, they've asked me this before, and so I always have the same answer. Yes, that was. <laughs> <laughs> that captures Lonnie. I mean, he was a kid in an old man's body. I like to think I'm the same way. But anyhow, he was enthusiastic, embraced all this stuff. He was so reserved normally. I knew him like that. Most people knew him as this very quiet person who never said anything. And if he did say something, you better be listening. But this is the Lonnie I knew. And that is certainly one of the best moments I remember. Right. Nobody's gotten any pizza yet. Go. Jim, what's the one thing that wasn't part of your original vision that you're very proud of today? So... Oh, and I, back to the headline thing. This is probably be part of the headline stuff. What we've done in uh, rare disease was certainly not part of it. And the inherited genetics, the information is power program, 
That's a great headline. It's amazing what we do, Give, doing free BRCA and various other inherited cancer risk genes for free or for $90, which is pretty darn free. So, y'all yeah, know the story about how we got going with that? It was Mary Claire King right. speaking at the Space and Rocket Center. Yeah, so every year we have a, we used to, and I guess we'll resume that, bring in an outside speaker for an annual event. And uh, Mary Claire King, who is the person who really discovered BRCA, but didn't quite, anyhow, won't go into that. There's always a little politics and science too. But anyhow, she gave a speech and then she dared, challenged us to offer bracket. At that point, bracket testing was three to $4,000 prohibitive. And you couldn't get it unless you had a strong family history in the first place. So she just challenged us to make it available for every woman 30 years old in North Alabama, free of charge. And we had given her a $5,000 honorarium for speaking. She took her check and said, I'm going to donate this check to that cause. And I stood up and said, I'm going to match that. And we did it. It is uh, something I'm really, really proud of. I think a handful of folks were looking around like, I mean, what just happened? I'm not really, what we're going to do next. And yeah. for the advancement side as well, <laughs> I was like, okay, we're going to do this. Yeah. But it's been a, we got more yeah, right, yeah. Right. So the, I think this really actually falls into what Lonnie and I envisioned, but it, it is a little bit of surprise. And that's how much we've realized that you can apply genomics to ag and get even better outcomes or even faster outcomes than you can in human health. And so I'm very proud of that effort that we're doing now, because I think at my age, I'm not going to see a whole lot more things happen. I'm probably never going to see anything important happen in human health, because even if we invented the cure for cancer tomorrow, nobody would get it for 15 years. That's just the way the system works. But ag is different. I think we can make a real impact in ag in my lifetime. That motivates me a lot. Other questions? Back to just want to point out something. When we first arrived, uh, it was about a year before we came here. So I was saying that Jim bought a, the first, like the first set Jim the scissors machine. And we were really happy when that machine made us in two or three days 20 million seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably get that many a minute now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it it has been really amazing. So, I think everybody here probably knows what DNA is, and that a little while ago is synthetic piece of DNA, and PCR primers are little short twenty base pair pieces or base pieces of DNA. When I started research genetics, that cost ten dollars a base. So one primer was two hundred dollars. To a pair of primers, which of course you need a pair, is $400. Now that's 50 cents. It's just crazy the way the prices have gone. But that's the story in electronics and everything else. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all very much for joining us. This podcast is powered by the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology, a 501c3 nonprofit organization working to improve the human condition through genomics research, 
bioscience education for students of all ages and creating economic opportunities for entrepreneurs and innovators. This podcast is intended to highlight innovators across Alabama who are moving ideas to action and in doing so, making our state an even better place to discover, innovate, start a business and raise a family. Thanks so much for listening to From Idea to Action, stories from Alabama innovators.